So this past Tuesday, as we've been talking about, this was the anniversary of 500 years of the Reformation. It was on that day that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, calling the church to reform. But the Reformation was far more than just Luther, and it was much more widespread than just one day. Its impact spread quickly across Europe and then around the world. One of the most significant individuals who was shaped by it in the years following 1517 was John Calvin, a French theologian who ended up as a a pastor and teacher in Geneva, Switzerland. And under Calvin's influence, the entire city of Geneva soon became a Protestant hotbed, so to speak. And the Catholic Church felt threatened enough to send emissaries and letters to Geneva in order to try to win the city back to Catholicism. The most famous of these was from a cardinal named Jacobo Satellito. And after Satellito pleaded with the Genevans, they asked John Calvin to respond for them. So Calvin penned by hand a 17,000-word letter as a response. For a frame of reference, my sermon today will be about 4,500. So 17,000 words is a lot. And at the heart of this letter, Calvin said this, said, Your zeal for heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not, even by one expression, arouse him to sanctify the name of God. You should set before man as the prime motive of his existence, zeal to illustrate the glory of God. Zeal to illustrate the glory of God. This was something that really consumed Calvin. He claimed here that it should be our prime motive of existence. Regarding Calvin, John Piper says that from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his life, his guiding star in vision was the centrality and supremacy and majesty of the glory of God. Let me put it this way. Given his passion for the glory of God, I'm convinced that John Calvin would not want us to focus on him today. If we only celebrated him or Luther or these other reformers for their accomplishments, we would really miss the entire point of the Reformation, which was to recapture, protect, preserve, and then proclaim the glory of God alone. In Latin, it's put as soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Please open your Bibles at this time to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1. So today we'll bring us to the conclusion of this series on the solas of the Reformation. But last but not least has never applied better than to this final sola. Because it is absolutely the most important of any of them. And that's saying something. Not only do all the other four solas lead naturally to soli deo gloria, but if you lose this one, you will undermine and ultimately lose all the rest. So if you want to, you want to protect the value of, of scripture and grace and faith and Christ in your life or in the life of our church, then we have to focus on God's glory. Let's pray that he would indeed be glorified in our time and in his word today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and as Jason just sung, you are holy. We have no right to approach your throne. And yet, through Christ, you have opened the way to do that. Your word is holy. And as we come to to see what you have said to us as your people. We pray that our hearts would be uh, awake, that we would see what you have to say, understand it, and be able to apply it to our lives. Help me do justice to your words somehow today, God, that is so far above any of us. 
We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. 1 Timothy 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege in ministry, Timothy. He begins by telling Timothy in this letter to watch out for dangerous false teachers. Look with me in verse 6. He says, Certain persons, by swerving from these truths, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So in short, these teachers were distorting God's word and they were teaching the law without understanding it. And so Paul sets out to correct their misunderstandings. Look in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and, uh, and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, that long list of sins and sinners may, be a, may seem like a surprising place for me to begin this sermon. But I actually want you to focus in on the last verse I read there, verse 11. Home in on this for a minute. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And the words that, that Paul uses here to describe things, he gives us our first big idea for today. And what we're going to see is that God's salvation plan is all about bringing glory to God alone. Yeah, the gospel, or, or God's salvation plan, is all about bringing glory to God alone. Did you notice what Paul called the gospel here? It's a great name. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, as I often tell you, gospel means good news. And when the Bible refers to the gospel, it's in a nutshell, it's talking about how the good news of how God saves sinners through Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the only place in the Bible that the gospel is called the gospel of the glory of God. And yet I think it hints at an absolutely fundamental truth about the gospel. And that is that underlying everything else, it was meant to bring glory to God. At its root, the good news about the glory of the blessed God was going forth. That was the gospel. After all, it was from him, through him, and to him in the first place, as Romans 11 tells us. And it is no exaggeration that, to, to say that this is the most important truth in the universe. Hey, Martin Luther, in one of his 95 theses, said that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. This is our truest and highest treasure. Now, before we go any further, perhaps I should define glory, in case it's a, a vague or churchy word to you. All right? Robert Saucy explains that the glory of God refers to the very nature of God made manifest. It is the display of his attributes or characteristics. Piper goes deeper. He says that the glory of God is the outward radiance of the intrinsic worth and beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Now, that's deep, I know. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine you go in for a job interview, and the interviewer asks you, what are your best qualities, your top strengths? And you think for a moment, you know, well... I'm a hard worker. That's everyone's first one, right? <laughs> but maybe you're thinking, yeah, well, I'm, I'm dependable. You can count on me. Or I'm creative. Things like that. 
And the interviewer asked this because he basically wants to, to get a sense of the person that they'd be getting in you. Right? But the real test isn't what you claim to be like. It's what you show yourself to be like. So, if you got the job, will you show yourself to be diligent or dependable or creative? And if other people can see those qualities in you, you're revealing your nature to them. You're outwardly demonstrating the person that you are on the inside. Now, God doesn't have best qualities, okay? He is perfect in all of his attributes. But when he outwardly reveals these things about himself, that is showing or demonstrating his glory. Glory is really God going public. Okay? And when, so when we see God's beauty or his greatness, or his power, or his creativity, or his love, or his holiness. Those are all aspects of seeing the glory of God. His glory is a reflection of who he is. And in case you weren't aware, God's glory is the reason for the existence of everything. Everything. If you ever laid on the ground, looking up at the sky, thinking, why am I here? This is it. Okay? We live in a, in a very human-centered world where we constantly focus on ourselves. And while we may not think we believe this, the way that we live shows that we believe life should be all about us. It's not. In Isaiah 43, 7, God talks about everyone on earth whom I created for my glory. Created everyone for his glory. James Montgomery Boyce says that everything in the universe is from God, has come into existence, and is sustained through God's creative power, and is for God's glory. Against the shallow, self-centered culture in which we live, this radically biblical view offers hope by saying that there is something infinitely better than a preoccupation with our own personal gains and happiness. And it warns us that anything less than this radically biblical worldview is ultimately unsatisfying. If everything exists for God's glory, It's no wonder that the gospel does as well, right? And it shouldn't be too difficult to see how it displays his glory. Think about it. Okay, the gospel shows the holiness of God. Displays the holiness of God. How he is so pure and set apart from us that he can't leave sin unpunished. The gospel demonstrates the love of God. How much he must love us to send us his son. The gospel shows his grace. How much he he wants to give to us, though we don't deserve it. The gospel shows his mercy. That he doesn't just unleash wrath on us, even though we do deserve that. The gospel reveals his justice, his righteousness. How he punished sin on the back of Christ. Gospel reveals his perfect wisdom. How he could masterfully orchestrate such a plan as this. The gospel, really, it radiates his power. The power that raised Christ from the dead. The the good news of salvation through Christ alone really does show off God's glory in so many ways. Now, you may think, well, this all sounds like pretty obvious stuff. And you wonder, well, why did the Reformation need to reclaim this truth? Who would actually oppose this? Well, the truth is that no one was outwardly or vocally opposing this doctrine. And no one was out there saying, well, yeah, actually, everything is really about us. No one was saying that. However, what many were teaching was undermining God's glory alone. So, for example, by teaching that authority rested in God's word and man's words or traditions, God himself wasn't believed to be the final authority on everything as he rightfully should be. 
or by teaching that salvation came by grace and our merit, faith and our works. God's role in salvation was being marginalized. By teaching that Christ was not our only mediator. Christ's supremacy and sufficiency was being detracted from. Meanwhile, other human beings were being elevated and glorified. Essentially, the reformers came along and they believed that the church was robbing God of glory. And that is a grave issue. And in case you think that we have outgrown this self-exaltation, or that maybe this was just a Catholic issue, think again. We modern Christians are just as guilty on a number of fronts. The Cambridge Declaration, what a number of scholars signed in the 90s, describes where we've fallen short this way. It says, Whenever in the church biblical authority has been lost, Christ has been displaced, the gospel has been distorted, or faith has been perverted, in other words, where the solas have been lost, it has always been for one reason— our interests have displaced God's, and we are doing His work in our way. The loss of God's centrality in the life of today's church is common and lamentable. It is this loss that allows us to transform worship into entertainment, gospel preaching into marketing, believing into technique, being good into feeling good about ourselves, and faithfulness into being successful. Oh, that's a scary critique, isn't it? This says that we have pushed God out of the center place. That we don't shape our church's lives around Soli Deo Gloria. And that's what's led to, say, concert-style worship, marketing-style preaching, and so on. We are often guilty of distorting the gospel of the glory of the blessed God into something about us. And we have got to do better because this is actually something that God has given to us to take care of. Look again in, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 11. Paul says, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And if you wonder, this was not just a job God gave Paul or super Christians to do. This was something entrusted to the church at large and everyone in the church. Entrusting is something that you do when you go on holidays and you find someone to take care of your dog or your cat. Right? You, you entrust your dear Odie or Garfield to someone who you believe will take care of them. Or if you loan something of yours to someone else, to a friend, you entrust whatever it is to them to use it and not abuse it. Right? Or, or parents entrust their children to sitters or caretakers or nurseries or daycares or schools all the time. Right? And when, when you leave your kids with others, you entrust something very precious to their care. In the gospel, God has entrusted something to us that is infinitely valuable and precious. Something that was bought with perfect blood. We are meant to, to care for it, to protect it, to use it, and then to share it all we can. Paul says elsewhere that all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and get this, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is a noble duty, a high calling, incredible stewardship. So are we living up to it? Are we caring for it? How are, are you treating the glorious gospel which has been entrusted to you as part of the church. So 
we began reading in 1 Timothy, you may have thought, well, this doesn't sound very glorious. I mean, Paul's train of thought here is actually kind of a crazy train. He basically says, the law was laid down for sinners, 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 and more sinners in accordance with the good news. You know, wait, how is that good news? Right? Well, I think we can expand on our main point in the, fir- uh, in the first of several ways here. So first of all, God's salvation plan is all about bringing glory to God alone as His law exposes our sin. As His law exposes our sin. It's God's law that exposes our sin in God's salvation plan. Now, we Christians tend to be thoroughly and rightly taught that we are not under law anymore. Speaking of the, the Torah, Moses, the law of Moses, from the, the first five books of the Bible. But sometimes that makes us think of the law very negatively. Right? We think grace, good, law, bad. The, the law seems outdated, inapplicable. So we, think we, can, we assume we can ignore most of the law as it doesn't apply to us. But here in 1 Timothy, Paul goes, no, no, no. The law is actually a very good thing. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So how is the law good? Well, for one, it comes from the perfectly good God. But also, think of how Jesus summarized the entire law. Right? Love God and love your neighbor. Love others. That's not a, a negative thing at all, is it? Those are are perfect ideals for us to strive for. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So how does one use the law lawfully or properly? How God intended it to be used? Well, you have to understand its purpose. Look at verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. Just is also translated righteous, which we know refers to those who have been justified by faith in Christ. So the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, and so on. So we know, so we are actually correct in thinking that the law is not meant for those who are saved. But we're wrong in thinking that the law is defunct or meaningless. It's not. It's got a purpose. And its purpose is for everyone who is not saved. Right? To expose their sins. For the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, before you think that this was just for everyone out there in the world, remember that this is something that every single one of us needed at some point. Because on our own, we are blind to our sin. We often think that many of our sins are even good. But God's word comes along and says, no, actually, you and your sins go directly against me and my ways. So thank goodness that God has given us his law to expose our evil. Otherwise, we'd have no idea that anything was even wrong to begin with. You may have listened to this list of sinful people that Paul gives here that, well, that's bold even offensive, to name some of these things as sins. And I know, our world completely disagrees with God on some of these. Right? But given, we really have to, to see this and we have to decide. Given our culture's ever-changing feelings compared to the never-changing Word of God, which one is true? And if you compare those, I think it's even bolder and more offensive to hear God's Word and decide that it must be wrong and you're going to live however you like. Make no mistake. 
We're not singling out any particular types of sinners here. There are plenty of sins on this list that every single one of us do all the time. Right? Do you ever disobey authorities? Do you ever use profane language? Are you ever sexually immoral, even through lust or porn? Ever tell lies? And just to cover all the bases, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, this is all of us. And we don't figure out that these things are wrong on our own. God reveals this to us through his law, through his word. It may not seem like good news to be exposed, but it's far better than not being exposed. It might seem terrible to be diagnosed with cancer, but it's much worse to never be diagnosed. It is much better to find out what's wrong so you can get treatment and even be healed. And when it comes to the the cancer of our sin, God has a way to heal us from it. He sent the law into the world to open our eyes to our sin, and then He sent His Son. And God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. It gives us our next point here, that God's Salvation plan is all about bringing glory to God alone as His grace overflows to us in Christ. As His grace overflows. God's salvation is all about God's glory as His grace overflows to us in Christ. See, the gospel exposes our sin, but then it exposes God's grace in Jesus. And to make this point, Paul goes, you know, let me share a bit of my story with you. I don't know if you know much about Paul's past, his backstory, but you get a, a hint of it here. Verse 12 says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, just to to sum this up, Paul could have described his his past this way. So, you know, at one time, I was pretty despicable. I was a blasphemer. I mocked God's plan and God's man, Jesus, thinking him a fraud. I went so far as to be a a persecutor of the church that God had started. So I tried to get people like you arrested and killed. I watched proudly, even cheered as one man, one leader, Stephen, was stoned to death in front of me. For a modern-day example of Paul, you might think of an ISIS fighter. Paul continues, I was an insolent opponent of God himself. I fought him at every turn. I was zealous about my cause. I thought I was doing the right thing. But then, I met Jesus. I I was on the road to chase down Christians fleeing my persecution. And Jesus personally showed up to pluck me from that path. A, A light blazed from heaven and I went instantly blind. Ironically, opening my eyes. The first thing Jesus did was expose my sin. Asking, why are you persecuting me? And then he set me on a very different path. He told me to go into the city and that some Christians would show up and would show me how to be saved. And three days later, the scales fell from my eyes, physically and spiritually. 
got baptized, and I have been hard at work in God's service ever since. Now look at verse 12. Does Paul say, I'm thankful because I had the strength to be faithful, and now I've chosen to serve God with my life? No. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He was thankful to Christ because Christ gave him strength. Christ had declared him or justified him to be faithful, and because Christ had now appointed him to serve. Paul's like, don't you get it? This was all because of God's grace to me. I didn't deserve any of this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See how how God's grace there led to this faith and then love. Now let's make this personal. If you are now a believer, if you call yourself a follower of Christ today, Who were you formerly? You may not have been a persecutor or an insolent opponent like Paul was. But maybe you were a blasphemer. Unholy, profane with your mouth. Maybe you lived in immorality with your mind or your body or both. Maybe you were a rebel to authorities that God placed over you, including Him. Maybe you were a a habitual liar, saying whatever would benefit you the most. Whatever you were, whatever you were, are you thankful that God has declared you not guilty in His sight? Are you thankful that that His mercy was given freely to you as a gift? Are you thankful that His grace overflowed for you, like water overflowing Niagara? Are you thankful for the faith or the love that you now have or that you get to serve Him? If so, then you'd better be thankful for Jesus. Because it's through Him, it's only through Him that we receive God's grace in any form. It's because He came to earth, He died our death, He rose again, that we are now so blessed. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, it is... He that should get the glory. God's salvation plan achieved through Christ alone was meant to radiate God's glory. And every time it saves someone like us, it displays His mercy or grace and love. And we can see this even more clearly as we keep reading. Look in verse 15. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What we see here is this. So God's salvation plan is all about bringing glory to God alone as His character is displayed through the mercy we receive. God's salvation doesn't display our great character. It displays His and the mercy that we receive from Him. Now you may not consider yourself the foremost or the worst of sinners like Paul did. But you should. You should because you know no one's heart better than you know your own. 
And if God has opened your eyes to the depths of your sin, it should humble you. There are so many sinful actions we don't even realize that we've done or that we do constantly. And then if you go beyond sins of action or commission, like once you get into sins of thought or motive or desire or sins of omission where we don't do what we should do, man alive, I am, bar none, the worst sinner I know. And I hope you can say the same. Because it makes this, it makes the gospel personal. And it makes it the best news you could ever hear. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It also displays to the world just how amazing God's mercy really is. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. See, if if God had, had come to save people who are already good, not that impressive. But if God came to redeem the lives of insolent opponents, that's mercy. I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So, your salvation displays God's character. You know that? Kind of like the way that a wall of TVs at a store can display impressive technology. Or the way that a professional hockey player's exploits can display crazy athleticism. Or the way that a a wedding ceremony can display deep love and affection. God putting up with us in all of our sin until the moment that His grace touched our lives displays His patience. His patience to those who haven't yet believed. So that in me he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if you are here and you haven't yet believed in him, this is the mercy that's available to you today. And no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, God has saved other worst sinners ever in order to display his patience to you. You can even look around this room and see many examples of God's patience. Which I hope would draw you to your knees in repentance and faith today. In amazement that God would send His Son to save someone like you. Like me. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And if we respond in faith, this is not our own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. David Van Drunen says, We like to think that there's something, just a little something, for us to add to the obedience of Christ or to the inspired word of the prophets and apostles. But the Reformers perceive that the perfect word and work of Christ, precisely because they are perfect, need no supplements. Anything that tries to supplement them, in fact, challenges their perfection and dishonors God's word and work in Christ. Really, we're all little glory thieves. We all want a little bit of credit, a little bit of glory, a little bit of honor for ourselves. But God says in Isaiah 48 that my glory I will not give to another. 
Brandon Smith says, God's glory is God's glory only if it is alone. It can't be shared or watered down. God receives all the glory because He does it all. Everything is from Him. God saves us because He loves us, but more than that, because He wants His glory to be clearly seen. He wants it clearly seen through us. So as 1 Corinthians 10 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. May we openly show ourselves to be Christians. Not for our sake, but for His. God may want to use the mercy that you've received to open up someone else's eyes. May we consciously work at our jobs or at our school in a way that shows that we're different. That not being so caught up in increasing our own success or reputations or wealth. May our, our times with our families be, be centered around extending God's kingdom and renown in our hearts and in our neighborhoods and our families around us. May our conversations with others always be seasoned with the grace that God has given us. May the way that we eat or drink bring glory to God. As a church, may our songs and our sermons draw attention to God and His glory, not ourselves. In sum, may may God use our lives to display His character as an example to everyone around us. After sharing how God has shown mercy to him, the worst of sinners, Paul can't help it. He basically bursts into song in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. These are majestic words. And they hammer home our big idea. The God's plan is all about bringing glory to God alone as His honor is praised forever. God's salvation is all about bringing glory to Him alone as His honor is praised forever. This is what everything is leading up to in the entire universe. God being glorified forever. Now we might think, isn't that selfish of God? Even egotistical to insist on His own glory? Well, C.S. Lewis was once bothered a lot by this. Before he was saved, he, he read the Psalms and, and he said that God sounded like a, a little old lady begging for compliments. Like, Don't you like my hair? No offense to little old ladies. <laughs> but he felt that God was like, you know, worship me, sing to me, honor me, serve me, praise me. But once Lewis got saved, he, he studied things more, he realized something. He said this, that I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. (laughs) We get this. This My whole difficulty 
about the praise of God depended on me absurdly denying to us what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help but doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. Do you get what he's saying? He's saying that that God is not begging for compliments from us because he needs them, but instead that he's trying to give us that which we most deeply need and should most deeply want. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Likewise, we will never be more satisfied ourselves than when we are all about his glory. And so, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the King of the ages. In other words, the the King of all time. In our fiercely individualistic society, we don't like the idea of having anyone over us. Any authority who can tell us what to do or how we should live. Timothy Keller comments that we want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. Right? We want him to have input into our lives whenever we need it. We don't actually want him to rule over every part of us for his glory. But God is the king of the ages. Not just king over a country or an era. He's king over history. He, is, he was king over creation. He was king over the early church when these words were being penned. He was king over the Reformation. He, was, he is king over now. Over the age of the 21st century. And he is king over the endless ages yet to come. He's also immortal, always living. He's invisible, veiled from our sight for now. He's the only God, God alone. We are not, no one else is. And his praise will go on forever as honor and glory are ceaselessly given to him. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we gather as this church, do we have this in mind? Or are we more focused on what God or the church can do for us? We get upset if we don't get our way or the church isn't serving us as if that's what it should all be about. Do we sing our hearts out in order to look more spiritual or to give him what he deserves? Do we set our hearts on things above and things eternal, not on things of this earth? Do we fix our our minds on him throughout the week or do a, a hundred other momentary interests or passions overshadow him or drown him out? Is there something in your life that needs to go in order to glorify Him alone? Everything is going to be for God's glory eventually. Really, it's already heading in that direction. Either we happily jump on this unstoppable train now, or we will when every knee bows. And if we don't, We only rob ourselves of the greatest enjoyment, the greatest satisfaction of having our lives revolve around the greatest being, glorifying the greatest God, which is the greatest purpose for which we were created. Every other sola is alluded to in our passage today. I don't know if you noticed that. Talks about all of them. But none of them are the capstone. 
None of them are the final word. The final word is to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Soli Deo Gloria. I've got nothing more to say today. No more powerful, historic stories to share with you all. Because really, the the story that God has written for us is the most powerful story of them all. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, even you, even me. And so we may, we always take our stand here. According to the word of God alone, we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. God, would you get the glory from our lives today? May we give you our all today. Anything else that is robbing you of glory in our lives, may we repent of that and get rid of it and glorify you alone. For you are worthy. For from you and through you and to you are all things. So to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.